So welcome to Common Sea Inspirations. My name is John Keeley. Today I am delighted to welcome onto the programme again Father Luke McNamara from Glenstall Abbey. How are you, Father Luke? Well, thank you, John. Good to talk to you again. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Father Luke has very kindly agreed to share with us today maybe an overview, maybe appreciation of the Acts of the Apostles, one of the books of the New Testament. So, Father Luke, where would you like to start sharing with us, please? I suppose the first thing about the Acts of the Apostles is that it's the second part of a two-volume work. We tend to separate it from the Gospel of Luke, but in actual fact, the two are connected because um, Luke begins the gospel in my, with uh, addressing it to a person called Theophilus. And then at the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, he refers to the same Theophilus and says, in my first volume, Theophilus, I spoke to you about all that Jesus taught and did. And that's his summary of the gospel of Luke. So we have there in the very first line of the Acts of the Apostles, a quick kind of review of the entire ministry of Jesus. And it's interesting that those two verbs, to teach and to do, uh, summarize the entire of Jesus, entirety of Jesus' ministry on earth. But of course, the gospel finishes with the ascension of Luke, ascension of Jesus in the gospel of Luke, and then the Acts of the Apostles will begin with a, with a rerun of the ascension scene. So in a sense, we have a, a binding of the two books together, a very strong binding of the two books together. So they cannot be really pulled apart, the gospel and the acts. They very much belong together. Of course, we have the strange situation that in our Bibles, we have the four gospels and then we have the acts of the apostles and then the letters of Paul. So there's this separation of acts from the gospel. And that's been the way since the very early church. And there's a specific reason for this. Because the early fathers of the church understood the early and the early members of the church, the disciples understood that the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, are very closely connected. They're called the synoptic Gospels. They have a kind of a unified vision of Jesus. And then there's a very distinct vision in the Gospel of John, a kind of a more meditative approach where we get to hear Jesus speaking a lot and a lot of reflections on the theology uh, behind the gospel. So we have a, a very different gospel and we have basically the arrangement of the Bible in the New Testament is that we have the all that deals with the life of Jesus together, the four gospels. Then we have the history of the early church, which the Acts of the Apostles, which introduces us to figures like Peter and Paul and their ministry after Jesus's ascension and after Pentecost. And that's a really good introduction to the letters that will follow of Paul and then of Peter, but also of of John. So it's a very, very good kind of arrangement. It gives a kind of a structure, a, a story structure, and then we can hear the writings of these individuals later on. So that's the way the the overall New Testament is structured. And that's why the Acts of the Apostles is in this key position between the Gospels and then the letters and um, the, the New Testament letters that we have afterwards. So it's really the Acts of the Apostles serves in the understanding of the of the arrangement in the New Testament as an introduction to um, and provides uh, introduce us to the the characters whose letters we will read later on. So that's the 
the first part I, I would like to speak about, really, just the arrangement of the New Testament and why two books which were originally very closely connected and still are, there's lots of literary links, um, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, why they are separated in the New Testament arrangement. So the Acts of the Apostles, it's a, not an easy read at one level. I, a lot of people can be put off when they, when they, when they hear the, the story of the Acts of the Apostles in church in short excerpts. And it's really best to take the whole book in one go and to read it from start to finish. Our readers may be over two days, but certainly in a short lapse of time, because there's a lot of connections between the various parts. And it's like any story. If you read, if you read only short excerpts over six months, you won't be able to follow the thread of the story. But if you read it all at once, then you get a sense of the, the thread of the full story. And then afterwards, you can get much better benefit from the individual sections because you can situate them in the where they where they come in the story. And that's a real help to understanding why, when and where those kind of questions throughout the story. But it's it's a very, very special story. And the, one of the problems with us with the Acts of the Apostles is what do we call it? We've traditionally called it the Acts of the Apostles. But it's not the Acts of the Twelve Apostles, really, at all. If we look at it closely, there's only two apostles really spoken about most of the time. For the first 12 chapters, it's mostly about Peter. And for the remaining 16 chapters, it's mostly about Paul. Now, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. There are other figures such as Stephen and Philip. But on the whole, it's, it's, we only have two of the 12 apostles. But there is another argument that really... The apostles aren't the while they're prominent in the story of the early church, they're not the ones that make the decisions. And it's very interesting to look at how the gospel spreads in the Acts of the Apostles, the word of the Lord spreads. Because at the beginning of the of the Acts of the Apostles, even already at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus commissions his disciples to go and preach to the ends of the earth, to preach to all nations. And uh, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria and Judea and to the ends of the earth, Jesus says to them before he ascends. Now, the apostles, um, Peter and John and the others, spend a long time in Jerusalem. And it's not for about eight chapters. They don't move from Jerusalem. And if they've got this commission from the Lord, they take a long time to get to Samaria and to the rest of Judea and beyond. And it's really the only reason they go to Samaria is because Philip has gone ahead of them. And strangely, it's because of persecution that they go, that the first disciples leave Jerusalem and go to Samaria. So it's interesting for us to think that, you know, persecution happens in many countries today, sadly in Sri Lanka and elsewhere. But this persecution has led to growth of the church in the past and may well do so today. So they, th that is one instance. The other instance is uh, where Peter goes to Caesarea, to the house of the centurion and uh, Cornelius. And he really is very loath to go. He's only convinced because of a vision from the Lord and because the Holy Spirit directs him to. And the, it is really the Holy Spirit that is driving the mission to uh, beyond Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. 
And the same could be said with, with the Apostle Paul. So there's this very great uh, reluctance from the early uh, followers of Jesus to to breach the boundaries of Judaism and to go beyond to the nations. And it's only in obedience to the voice of the Lord and the Holy Spirit that they actually get to go and go. And do we see that particularly in chapters eight to 12 of the Acts of the Apostles, where we have a movement from an almost completely Jewish church uh, up to chapter eight to then including the Samaritans in the rest of chapter eight and an Ethiopian eunuch and then extending out to Gentiles in chapter nine, 10, 11 and 12. So we have all of this. It's interesting to note the Holy Spirit in these chapters is very active, very, very prominent. We see the Holy Spirit at work a lot. And recently, um, some commentators on the Acts of the Apostles like to rename it and call it no longer the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because really it's the Holy Spirit that is directing everything from Pentecost onwards. The Holy Spirit is driving um, the mission, empowering the disciples, gathering the, the disciples in church communities where they gather at peace and harmony with one another. So that it is really the Holy Spirit that seems to be very, very active throughout. And if Paul and Peter have prominent positions, it's only insofar as they are uh, receptive to and responsive to and obedient to the Holy Spirit, which empowers them then to do things well beyond their wildest dreams. So that's really um, the, the, the first bit I think I would like to say about Peter and Paul. Um, and it not being less um, uh, the acts of the apostles, less the acts of Peter and Paul, and more really the acts of the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit which is really causing the church to grow. So we have, um, we might um, note as well that we have, and this has often been said, oh, what we have in the Acts of the Apostles is a description of the church, which is perfect. All are living in harmony, breaking bread, praying and sharing everything in common. And that this is an idyllic view of the early church. But in actual fact, the Acts of the Apostles is very realistic. We are shown a lot of division and problems in the early church. There is the problem of greed and avarice with Ananias and Sapphira who want to keep money for themselves. And they lie to the Holy Spirit. And so financial uh, problems and impropriety didn't start with uh, the banks in Ireland. It has been ongoing for a long, long time from the very earliest moments of the church. And it's somewhat reassuring to know that the early church, even in the time of the first apostles, experienced financial irregularities, also rivalries between different groups, between the Hellenists, the Greek speakers and the Aramaic speakers in the church in Jerusalem. There was an argument over the distribution uh, to the widows whose widows were getting uh, support and which widows were not. And it appears that at first the ones who were Greek speaking were being neglected and overlooked. And it's interesting that the, the apostles, uh, the 12 apostles who were in charge, um, make arrangements for the non-Hebrew uh, speaking uh, 
members of the church to be looked after by Greek-speaking deacons, and among whom are Stephen and Philip. So there's great care to, um, to look after people of different groups in the church. And this, we could think about this for our own church in Ireland today, because we are welcoming in Ireland currently many people from Poland, from Lithuania, from, uh, from Africa, from Asia, from the Philippines, from India, many Catholics into our communities. And it behoves us to give them a welcome, like the early church made a welcome for the newcomers from very diverse backgrounds and very different places. Already at Pentecost, we see the multitude of nations gathered um, when the disciples are speaking in the tongues and they, everyone hears them in their own language. So the gospel isn't restricted to any group, to the, to the Irish, to anybody. It's, it's inclusive of all. And we have in, in Pentecost really a reversal of the dispersal of the nations at the tower, when the Tower of Babel collapsed and the language of the people was confused and people no longer understood each other. At Pentecost, we have the spirit which unites us and brings us together and hopefully will be the foundation of a new time of peace and harmony. So there's lots of, uh, I think, lots of um, elements of this, of this book, which are very, very relevant and pertinent for today, pertinent about how we welcome immigrants in this country, into our church communities, how we welcome people who are maybe not Catholic as well, and how we welcome the outsiders within our own communities, those who for every reason have been ostracized in the past. So if we, if we look at the acts um, and the actions of the, the growth of the church, we see the mission uh, reaching to very different groups, but also encountering a lot of opposition wherever uh, the disciples go. They preach, first of all, usually in a synagogue or to the local Jewish community. And then when a position arises within the community, they have to go outside. And then for a while they will preach again. And then again, there will be opposition either among the higher echelons of the, of the local town or perhaps the populace. Uh, so opposition comes from all quarters. But despite this opposition, despite the unpopularity um, of uh, apparent unpopularity of the mission, the mission somehow succeeds. It is a difficult word to preach the crucified Lord, to preach a gospel which shows its power and weakness. And this is it's always difficult and it's not something that we would put on a publicity poster for anything for any uh, in front of any uh, match or before any match, we always speak about the strength of the players, their fitness, their performance. We don't speak about their weakness and serving in weakness and being humble. And yet this is how Christianity uh, makes its way through the world. It's a it's a, it's a it's a we serve others. The one who serves is the master of all. And we follow it in his footsteps. And that's very evident when we look at 
the careers, if I put it in that rather prosaic way, the careers of Peter and Paul in the Acts of the Apostles. We see Peter curing a lame man in the temple. But of course, Jesus has already healed a lame man. We see Peter preaching before the Jews. We've had Jesus preaching in the synagogue at Nazareth and Capernaum before the Jews. We see um, Peter being arrested and mistreated. Of course, we saw Jesus arrested and mistreated. And we could replay the same events with Paul or even again with Peter when he raises Tabitha. We might have the daughter of Jairus being raised with Jesus and so on. There are many, many so-called parallels between the career of Peter and Jesus and between the career of Paul and Jesus. And Jesus is a model for Peter and for Paul. And when Peter goes and proclaims the gospel, he doesn't simply repeat what Jesus said, but he also repeats what Jesus did. And this is how he gives faithful witness to the gospel. And remember how Luke recalls the gospel at the beginning of Acts. In my first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus taught and did. So we see Peter first and then Paul repeating all the teaching of Jesus and then repeating um, all the actions of Jesus. In a sense, they, they, they take Jesus as their model. They are other Christs in a way. They behave like Christ. And indeed, the Christians, the disciples behave so much like Christ that they begin to be called Christians by the people in Antioch in Acts 11. And readers in, and hearers of this passage might say, oh, isn't it wonderful that Paul, uh, when he arrived at Antioch, the people started to be called Christians. In actual fact, the first people to call the disciples Christians were the opposition. They were, it was a term of, to identify the, the, the people belonging to Christ, the Christ faction in the city. And it was a term of abuse by people who disregarded Jesus's followers. And that term of abuse was absorbed by the disciples and taken as a title of honour because they said, as with Paul, so we can suffer with Christ. We can take Christ's name upon us. We can take Christ's identity upon us. And that is that is where it all started. So in actual fact, the name Christians, it's strange, but in the Acts of the Apostles, it appears to have been the opposition that came up with the name, not members of the church. And that tells us a lot about uh, who we are, that we uh, are Christians and we are recognized as such because we behave like Christ, we speak like Christ, and perhaps also we will suffer like Christ. And that is very true today in Sri Lanka, in parts of Africa, in Burkina Faso, but also in many other countries um, where there is persecution of one sort or another. The next um, thing I think I might speak about are the, the later parts of Acts, where we have some very dramatic scenes of imprisonments of Peter and imprisonments of Paul. And 
for anyone listening, prison is not a place one would like to be. It's a place where one is mistreated. In ancient times, certainly the prisoners were mistreated, not fed properly. They were, um, they had no very few rights. They were often whipped and beaten and they were held securely and deprived of many rights. And this, this wouldn't have been universal uh, in the ancient times, but the prisons that are described in the Acts of the Apostles are what you might call maximum security prisons with all the doors and bolts and extra security guards and so on. These are the, at the, the higher end of the, of the security. And I suppose the point here is that the disciples uh, use um, this opportunity to evangelize, to spread the word of Christ within the prison. And we see that particularly in Acts 16, where we have the disciples singing hymns together around Paul when he's imprisoned. And it's some, there's something wonderful about this, that, that the people at the rock bottom of their life are being raised up through an encounter with Christ in the person of Peter or of Paul. So there are people who may not be in prison, some people may be, who are listening, but there may be others who, for some reason or other, are, have restrictions in their life. They may be limited to their home through illness, or they may have restrictions of other sorts. They may have had disruptions in their family relationships or whatever, which causes them hurt and pain. And they may feel as if they're in a prison-like situation. And yet this is a key place where Christ is brought to uh, people. Prison as a key place where Christ meets the weak and the vulnerable uh, in his disciples. So prison ministry is, is really, really important. And Paul VI, um, the Pope uh, who was, was, was asked um, who was his favourite theologian of the last, um, last century, and he said it was Karl Barth. And um, there were many reasons that he may have had, but I think one of them was that Karl Barth was not because he was a, because he was a Protestant, or anything, but it was because of his ministry in prisons that really touched um, the the Pope Paul VI, and that he was able to reach out to the most vulnerable in Germany, particularly through through uh, periods of persecution in the Nazi era, but also beyond. And it was there was something wonderful that that despite his uh, great erudition and his great career, he was the one of the foremost um, theologians in Germany and had an extraordinary impact in society. He'd have been as popular. It's hard to rate his popularity, but he, he, he gave so much to theology in the 20th century and yet made so much time for prisoners. And that is something very much, uh, very much emphasized in his work. And so his little book, Deliverance to Captives, really, really speaks not only for prisoners, but also for all of us. And so I think he recognized in the Acts um, this prison ministry, which, as I say, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean we have to be in prison, but, uh, but it can for any one of us that feels in such a situation that we are there, Christ comes to us. Matthew says much the same, sick and in prison and you, 
visited me. But in the Acts of the Apostles, we get to see it enacted with the um, disciples. There is also a thing that would be important to mention today are the, is, is, the, is the shipwreck of Paul in the Mediterranean at a time when many migrants are crossing the Mediterranean to Europe and sadly many are drowning. And we have the story of, of Paul being brought as a prisoner to Rome in a ship and the ship is shipwrecked. But Paul prays to the Lord for the entire crew and all are saved. And that is a real uh, word of hope to those who are starting out life in Ireland, perhaps after very traumatic experiences in in other countries, even in their, either in their home countries or on their journey to Ireland, through journeying through Africa or the Middle East or coming across on the water. Many of these people have experienced horrific events. And yet Paul here is with all those as representing Christ to them and bringing them to safety. So it's a wonderful word of hope to those who have come through such difficult times. And it's a reminder to us to do our utmost to save those who are in such straits. And it was good to see our own Irish Navy helping out in the rescue relief during the summer. And hopefully they will be going back again next summer. I suppose the other thing I would like to mention is that we often uh, regard ourselves, be it um, laity or, or priests or bishops, as we being in charge. We often think that we're in charge and in charge of whatever we're doing, that we're in charge of ourselves, we're in charge of our parishes, we're in charge of our diocese or whatever. But the Acts of the Apostles is a real reminder to us that of the action of the Holy Spirit guiding us and directing us and protecting us and supporting us. And we see from very early on that Matthias, who is the, the replacement of Judas, he's not chosen by voting or by decision of the group, but they cast lots. There is an openness to the action of the Spirit and there's an openness to the action of the Spirit even in before any mission, any sending out of the disciples, there is the prayer of the community, be it at Antioch or at Jerusalem. There is this, there is this constant reference to um, the, the presence of the Spirit guiding and, and supporting the church and also guiding and forming each of the disciples within the church. So the Holy Spirit may be not so visible, but between the lines is really, really very much present. And this is where that wholesome reading of the Acts of the Apostles, reading it as a full book, will really help. I might mention um, two recent uh, interesting developments in, in the study of the Acts of the Apostles. And one is the latter part of the Acts of the Apostles. There is a very long trial of Paul from Acts 21 to 28. And we often think of Paul as a missionary. And he is a missionary from Acts 13 to, 
to 21 or so. But he's as much a prisoner as he is a missionary. He spends as much time in prison as he does on mission, if not more. And I think this is something that we might remember. And in a sense, when we when we look at Paul's trial, we're invited to look back to Jesus's trial. And Paul, once again, like uh, Peter, is imitating here Jesus, imitating Jesus in his trial and offering himself up um, for his church and doing his utmost and for the spread of the gospel. And throughout his trial, it's interesting, he is in prison, he is brought before various rulers, but he uses every opportunity he has, even though he's a prisoner, to spread the gospel. And it's curious that he seems to be an even better, uh, have better success at evangelizing once he becomes a prisoner than he, than he had when he was um, a missionary. So there's that interesting contrast that despite limitations, that despite the limitations we might have, maybe we're housebound. We can still have a very active ministry through simply through phone calls, through letter writing, which is what Paul did a lot of himself, through um, through through simply accompaniment and support when people come to visit. People who come to visit can often derive as much help and support from us as as we receive from them. So not to think of ourselves always as on the receiving end, but we can also be giving as well. And that goes for everyone, whether we come or go and visit. So the the final thing that I might mention is there's been some some interest in looking at uh, the the art of the the New Testament. And we've seen there's two um, elements I'd like to focus on here very briefly. One is Pentecost. And we have an interesting uh, description of Pentecost in the early artwork of the first 10 centuries, where we mostly just have the disciples depicted in the mosaics or in the frescoes. It's interesting that from about 1200 onwards, we always have Mary among the disciples. And Mary, of course, is regarded as a figure of the church, prefiguring the church and a central figure of the early church. And if we read the Acts of the Apostles, we see her very much prominent among the disciples in, at the end of chapter one. When we start chapter two, we hear that when the disciples were gathered together, there was the tongues of fire and the Holy Spirit came upon them. And it, it some for some reason, for the first millennium, we assumed that only the apostles were there. But of course, if we read the story in continuity with what preceded, we might presume very well that Mary was among them. And it's interesting to see the shift before we have the 12 apostles receiving the 12 tongues of fire on their heads. But when Mary comes into the picture from about 1000 onwards or 1200 onwards, she is central. And she is the one, she is the centre of the apostles and they are gathered around her. And I think that's a lovely image where we have Mary very much at the centre of the church. And if we remember back to the Gospel of Luke, 
Mary is the one who remembers, who ponders in her heart. She is a model of one who prays. And of course, it's when they pray and when they're gathered in prayer that the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And that happens repeatedly. And that's really important. So the, 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 the association with, of prayer with Mary and as a model of prayer and of being, being bringing prayer to the heart of the church. And I think that's a really happy change in the portrayal of the Pentecost in art. And the, the other piece of art that I should mention is the famous Caravaggio at the conversion of St. Paul on the road to Damascus. And Paul is depicted as a, a knight, a medieval knight on a horse who has fallen off onto the ground. And he, is arm, he has armour, he has everything uh, ready to persecute the Christians of Damascus. But now he's thrown prone on the ground, on the flat of his back, vulnerable to attack, his weapons at either side of him. And we see him before uh, be, be before an empty space where he is wondering what is happening to him. And I think while it's not really historical, because, of course, he's not a medieval knight. Paul was a, a first century uh, uh, a citizen of the Roman Empire. However, it very well captures the change that is required of, of Paul to become a disciple of the Lord. He is invited to become humble, to become a servant of all, to absorb violence rather than meet out violence. And this change is something that's asked of all of us because there's, you know, in our words, in our actions, there, they can often be hidden violence. And it is something very, very special to develop the mind of Christ, the gentleness of Christ, the humility of Christ which allows us then to more effectively bring Christ to others. Father Luke, thank you so much for, for sharing that with us. Uh, I know lots of people will get lots from that. Um, just for myself, maybe just a, just a few points, just to, just to emphasize for myself anyway. What I got there from, the, from your reflection there, Father Luke, was the role of the Holy Spirit in the Acts of the Apostles. And that happens still in our own life. Would that be right? Absolutely. The, the whole, the, it's really, I prefer the, 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 the option to call it the acts of the Holy Spirit, to be honest, though we have to keep with tradition. But I still think it's a good, it's a very good second best, the acts of the Holy Spirit and the acts of the Holy Spirit, not simply present, as you rightly say, within the church and within the mission of the church, but also within each and every one of us, forming us and guiding us to becoming ever more Christ-like and ever more uh, worthy in a way of, of bearing the name Christian. And just following on from that then, you also mentioned right at the beginning there that the good news, the good news of the gospel is open to everyone. And that's what Peter and John done. They, they gave it to everyone and we in turn can't just choose who we give the good news to. Be open to the Holy Spirit to pass on the good news wherever we're found in life. Would that be also true? I, I think so. I think also there's maybe a, a, a further lesson that one could say in that Peter and Paul were reluctant to go to others and only did so under the guidance of the Spirit. And I think that's maybe a, 
uh, a reminder to us that to when we do go out to others um, beyond the, the beyond the our own Christian community, it is worth always praying for the guidance of the Spirit in doing so, so that we may act as in accordance with the Spirit, and then we will act with better with with security. That that that's that's also, um, I think, uh, a, another element that that we should always ask for the guidance of the Spirit as we go beyond to to new people um, and to to people that we don't know and to people beyond our faith as well. And I love what you mentioned there, Father Luke, about um, doing what we can in terms of prison ministry. For those people who we, who we meet ourselves who are maybe located in their own house and can't get out of the house and, and need some hope, we have a role to play in that too. Yes, I think so. And um, the one of the things that um, a number of pensioners have been doing in Ireland, and I think it's a wonderful thing, is writing letters to uh, prisoners, um, to prisoners either abroad or prisoners in America um, on death row. There's a group um, who do that also. But they're, they're, I think writing to people in prison who, who have no contact with the outside world or very little, I think that's something very, very um, special that we can do. But it's also something, of course, we can do with, with those in our communities are beyond who are confined to their homes and a letter is something very very special it's something they can hold and look back at again it's not like a phone call where it's happened and that's good too but but you you can forget it whereas a letter you can pick it up and reread it and enjoy it a second or a third time and in fact that's something very special that you could do also with the acts of the apostles you, once you've read it once you can keep going back to it and again and again and one young um, lad that I that I did um, give the book of the Acts to to read, he said that he could never get into it. But once he'd read it once, then he could began to get into it. And now he's a frequent reader of the Acts of the Apostles. He's a 27 year old who's gotten interested. So there you go. And then, of course, you did uh, suggest then that we read it through rather than waiting, for instance, in, in the season of Easter, waiting to hear it at Mass the odd time, to take some time maybe to read it through, to get an appreciation of what it's about. And I think you brought that point through too. Yes, I think so. I think it's uh, like any book. It's, it's best read altogether uh, within a day or two at most so that you can actually remember the whole story at once and then get a sense of the story and meditate on it and really make it your own. And then when you go back to it, you have a much better sense of where you are. And maybe just one last thing, um, Father Luke, what do you think we can learn from reading the Acts of the Apostles and continuing to read the Acts of the Apostles? Well, I think one of the most important things uh, is that 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 it's not us who who make ourselves Christian. It's 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 Christ at work in us through the Spirit. And we see um, the disciples, uh, we see the apostles, Peter and Paul, but also the disciples in the various towns. They become configured to Christ under the under the obedience to the Holy Spirit or through the Holy Spirit and sometimes being pushed to, to new places where they don't want to go. And I think if we're if we have that kind of attitude of allowing Christ to come to us and work within us and allowing him to transform us and trusting that he will transform us rather than trying to control and to be in charge. That's not how, how we become Christian. 
we, 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 we can't, in a sense, we have to let go of our self-will. And that's what ultimately happens with Peter and Paul. They let go of their self-will, their, their plans, their great plans, and they, they, they adjust their, their vision and their story and their actions to those of Jesus in, in, in humble obedience to the Holy Spirit. And then with what wonderful results. Father Luton McNamara, thank you so much for sharing um, your time with us today to, to really give us an appreciation, maybe for the first time for some of us, what the actually the Apostles is all about uh, and um, take time, go through it again and give it time, I assume. So Father Luke, thank you so much again and please God will speak to you again sometime. Thank you very much, John. God Thanks, bless. Sir.